Well, first of all, let me just thank Adrian for leading us in worship today. Adrian, you did a great job. Thank you so much. Now, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want you to hold it up with me, okay? I want you to hold it up with me, and let's repeat what we've been repeating for the last several weeks. This is God's Word. I believe it is true. I believe what it says about God. I believe what it says about me. It teaches me how to know God. And it teaches me how to live for God. Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Nahum. Now if you're paying attention and you've been here through this series, you notice that we just skipped over a book. We skipped over the book of Micah. We're going to get back to Micah next week. But the reason that we are going on to Nahum this week is because Nahum is the completion of the story that Jonah began. Jonah was a prophet, we discovered last week, that, that told us that God is a God of second chances. Jonah was called by God to go and prophesy in Nineveh, but he rejected God's call. He refused God's call, and instead of doing what God called him to do, he did exactly the opposite of what God called him to do. He ran from God, but we can't run from God. And after a series of events, Jonah finally submitted, he finally surrendered to God's will, and he went to Nineveh to proclaim God's message. And God's message was a message of destruction. God's message was a message of judgment. Jonah went through the streets of the city preaching, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. God gave Jonah a second chance for service. But we also discover in the book of Jonah that God gave the Ninevites a second chance for salvation. Because when Jonah preached that message of God's judgment, the Ninevites, the Assyrian people, repented and believed in God and God relented. God didn't destroy them. And there was this great spiritual awakening that took place in the most wicked nation in the world. And so that's what we see in the book of Jonah. But the book of Nahum occurs about 150 years later. And it's the completion of the story. Because we see that the Ninevites, the Assyrians, didn't continue to believe in God. They didn't continue to trust in God. They didn't continue to live their life under his authority, under his rule. They went back to their wickedness. And the book of Nahum tells us that God is going to judge Nineveh. He is going to judge the Assyrians finally and ultimately. He is going to destroy them. And if there is a message that we need to understand when it comes to the book of Nahum, it is this. Every person personally and every nation corporately is either going to experience the grace of God or the wrath of God. I want to say this again because it is very important. Every person publicly, personally, and every nation corporately is either going to experience the grace of God, the mercy of God, or they are going to experience the wrath of God. Now all of us like to hear about the grace of God. 
But the truth of the matter is, the Bible speaks as often about the wrath of God as it does about the grace of God. Now, as we look through these three short chapters in the book of Nahum, there are three important truths that we need to understand. Truths that I believe, if we grasp, they will literally change our life. Now, the first truth that we learn is this, and that is a picture of God's character. We see a picture, a portrait displayed of who God is. Look at Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. It says, the Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and wrath. He takes revenge on all who oppose him. And continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry. But his power is great. And he never lets the guilty go unpunished. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are dust beneath his feet. At his command the oceans dry up. The rivers disappear. The lust pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade. And the green forest of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and the people are destroyed. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes, blazes forth like fire and, and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust in him. Now let me remind you, the Bible is first and foremost a book to reveal to us who God is and how we can know him. Throughout the book, the Bible, from the very first pages to the very last pages, we are painted a beautiful picture, a portrait of what God is like. Unfortunately, many in our world today and I would say most in America today have a far different picture of God than the one that is painted in the Bible. You see, the truth of the matter is most of us today are guilty of idolatry. Now listen, idolatry isn't simply creating a, a carved image and worshiping it. Idolatry is, is creating a picture of God in your mind and worshiping it and, and what it's done for us. You see, instead of opening up God's Word and allowing God's Word to paint the picture, to paint the portrait of who God is, we carve our own pictures of God. We, we paint our own pictures of God, and they are deficient pictures. Now let me tell you what Nahum says about God, the God of the Bible. First of all, he says that he is a jealous God. The Lord is jealous. The truth is, the Bible tells us that jealous is one of the names of God. In Exodus 34, verse, verse 14, it says this, You must not worship any other gods, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. Think about that. The Bible says the Lord is jealous, and he is jealous about his relationship with you. The very first two of the Ten Commandments deal with this issue of the jealousy of God. 
In Exodus 20, verses 2 through 6, it says this. I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. You must not have any other God but me. You must not make for yourself an idol of, of any kind or an image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. Don't miss that. God says that he is so jealous that he will not tolerate us having affections for any other gods. And then he says this, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and the fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. You see, when God lays out his commands for his people, his laws for all the people who live on planet Earth, he begins by telling them that he is a jealous God. Twenty-seven times in the Bible, we are told the Lord, the God, is a jealous God. Now, this may shock some of you because we think of jealousy in terms of, of selfishness. We think of jealousy in terms of enviousness, of immaturity. We think of someone who, who resents what we have as being jealous. We think of someone who is insecure in their relationship with us of being jealous. But that's not what it means when it applies to God. You see, God's jealousy flows from who he is. God's jealousy flows from what he created us for. You see, the Bible tells us that God is a sovereign God. He is holy. He is unique. He is the one and only true God. He is the creator of everything that we see and even everything that we can't see. He made everything out of nothing with a single word. There is no God but him. And he alone is worthy of our worship and praise and honor. And when we worship anything else other than him, he is jealous. And understand, all of our sins that we commit in life are simply the result of our idolatry. All of our sins are simply the effect of us putting other gods before God. We create gods that will let us do what we want to do, what we would like to do, what we want to be. We we create gods that will let us live the way we want to live. Gods that will come at our beck and call. Gods that serve us rather than realizing that the God of all creation is worthy to be served. And God is a jealous God. Think about it for a moment in a much smaller scale. For you who are married, can you imagine your spouse coming home to you and telling you, I found another lover. I love my other lover. Now let me ask you a question. Do you as a spouse, one who has pledged your love and loyalty to this person, do you have a right to be jealous? You better believe you do. You have a right to be jealous because you have entered into a covenant relationship with a person 
a person that you love and that you have pledged your loyalty to, a person that has pledged their love and loyalty to you, and they have broken that covenant, and now they are saying their love is going to be given to another, yes, you have the right to be jealous. And when we create other gods and begin to worship them rather than the God who created us and loves us, God is a jealous God. One person described God's jealousy like this. It does not imply that God is subject to petty suspicions, but rather that he commands exclusive loyalty of his people along the lines of the first and the second commandment. God demands our loyalty to him. And when we are not loyal to him, he is a jealous God. Now listen, that Hebrew word that is translated jealous can also be translated anger. And if you look at the rest of verse 2, it is clear that God's jealousy results in anger when we rebel against him. The Bible says that he is filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on those who oppose him. He continues to rage against his enemies. God is jealous of the worship and love that he has deserves, and he is filled with vengeance and anger when we show that love and that loyalty to someone else. Three times. Three times in verse 2. The same word is used for the vengeance, the anger, the wrath of God. God's jealousy for our love results in his wrath toward us. Make no mistake. God may allow rebellion against him. God may allow us to worship other gods for a season. But one day, someday, payday will come because God, our God, is a jealous God. But notice what else Nahum says. He says God is not only a jealous God, God is a patient God. He is slow to get angry. Just as God is jealous for our love, he is patient with us. And we see this truth repeated over and over again in Scripture. Exodus 34, verse 6, says the Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Numbers 14, verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger, filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. But he does not excuse the guilty. Psalms 103, verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get anger, filled with unfailing love. You see, God is not some hothead that, that blows up at our every indiscretion, our every failure, our every sin. He is patient with us. He is long-suffering with us forgiving our sins over and over again we see that in the Assyrians God forgave them a hundred and fifty years earlier and when they turned their back on him once again he was patient with them and gave them chance after chance to repent sometimes we wonder why God doesn't judge the wicked and it's because he is patient with us, giving us the opportunity to repent. 
You see, the reason God hasn't judged you when you needed judgment is because he is patient with us, wanting us to repent. God makes that, that truth crystal clear in 2 Peter 3. In verses 8 and 9, it says this, But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord really isn't being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Listen to me. Understand, if you have not received God's grace and God's mercy, if you have never turned from your sin and rebellion, if you have not surrendered your life to God's rule in your life, then you are living under the patience of God. And God doesn't want to pour down his wrath on you. He doesn't want to rain down his judgment on you. He created us so that he could love us and so that we could love him. But understand, his holiness and his righteousness demands that if we do not repent of our sin, if we do not turn from our rebellion and self-centered living, then he must judge us. God is patient. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the Spirit of the living God has never changed you and brought you into his family so that you know that you have been made new. You know you're a part of his eternal family, then I beg you, I plead with you this morning, don't leave this room without humbling yourself before Almighty God and asking him to forgive you, repent, and place your faith in him. Our God is a jealous God. Our God is a patient God. But, but third, he tells us that our God is a powerful God. He displays his power in the whirlwind and the storm. At his commands, the oceans drop, the rivers disappear, the, the lush pastures fade, the, the green forests wither. In his presence, the mountains quake, the hills melt, the earth trembles. Who can stand before his fierce anger? Who can survive his burning fury? No one. He is the all-powerful God. No matter how powerful a nation may have become, no matter how powerful a person may think they are, God exercises control over their lives. There are some of us today who think that America is invincible. Give me a break. Our history pales in comparison to the history of the Syrian people. Their rule as the dominant power in the world was for hundreds upon hundreds of years, over a thousand years. And yet God destroyed them utterly and completely. Don't think that a nation is too powerful to be taken down by God. Don't think that an individual is too powerful to be taken down by God. It's foolish to think. That we can rebel against God and somehow win. The God who spoke.
spoke the world into existence can speak you out of existence. And you need to understand that. How is it that somehow, someday, some way in our day and age, we have come to the point that we don't fear the power of Almighty God? That's one of the terrible things that has happened in the last couple of generations in America. We're living among a people that no longer fear God. And I tell you, that is a dangerous thing. God has the power to destroy all of his enemies. And God has the power to meet our every need. All power belongs to God. God is jealous. God is patient. God is all-powerful. But there's a, a fourth truth that Nahum teaches us. He teaches us that God is a good God. The Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. He is close to those who trust him. I've got to tell you, I'm so thankful for this truth. God is good. God is not some cruel, vindictive deity ready to destroy us. Everything he does flows from his goodness. Everything that happens isn't good. And everything that God does may not even seem good in the moment, but it is because God is good. And what those of us who know him can trust is this, all things work together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his holy purposes. And notice what it says. It says that he takes care of us in every crisis situation. He is our refuge when trouble comes. Sherry and I discovered this firsthand six weeks ago. I mean, how do you bury a child? The only way is when you can understand that, that God is good and he is a refuge in times of trouble. In the midst of the hurt, in the midst of the pain, he is there. And because he is good, we can trust him even when we don't completely understand. God is jealous, demanding our worship. He is patient, wanting us to repent. He is powerful. Who can fight against him and win? And he is good in any and all situations. You see, Nahum doesn't teach us everything about God's character. We have to study the entire word to see everything about God's character. But, but Nahum does teach us some incredible truths about God's character, truths that are important for us today. But the second thing we see in, in Nahum is this, the penalty of man's sin. Listen to what it says in Nahum chapter 1, verse 14, and, and chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, and, and this is what the Lord says concerning the Assyrians in Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols and the temples of your God. I am preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Your enemy is coming to crush you, Nineveh. Man the ramparts. Watch the roads. Prepare your defenses. Call out your forces. One secular historian, not a believer, said the fall of Nineveh is one of the top 20 events in human history. It brought an end to the dominance of the Assyrian rule. They were the greatest power on earth 
from 2300 B.C. to 600 B.C. All the other nations of the world trembled when they heard the name Assyria. And when Assyria fell, when Nineveh fell, they were still at the peak of their power. No one would have dreamed that that Assyria could fall. Every other world power that collapsed has collapsed over time. We, we read about the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire, the decay that came into the Roman Empire. That's not what happened in Assyria. They were this powerful force one moment, and in an instant, it was gone. Now, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And it was the greatest city in the world at that time. They thought that it was impregnable. The walls were 100 feet high. This isn't just biblical things. This is archaeological and historical truth. The walls were so wide that three chariots could could ride on the walls abreast at the same time. The walls covered an 18-mile circumference. It was a self-sustained city. In other words, they had their own water source. They had their own food source. No one thought that Nineveh could ever come down, and yet it did. When we read through the book of Nahum, Nahum has given us prophetically a detailed picture of the invasion and the fall of Nineveh. But as we read it, it looks like more of a historical account. Because what he says is so accurate. In chapter 1 verse 8, he talks about uh, sweeping his enemies away in a flood. And that's exactly what happened. The Nineveh was, was built in, in a rock near modern-day Mosul, and, and on the Tigris River, there were two rivers that came together, and, and they were in flood stage, and the Medes, the Medes caused one of the dams to burst, and it came against the walls of the city, and it destroyed the city where the water came flooding in, and the Medes and the Babylonians were able to come in and take the city. No one would have ever thought it could happen. No one could have ever thought that the, the mighty Assyrians could fall, but they did. To the point that a, an ancient historian wrote about discovering the ruins of Nineveh 200 years after the fall of the city. He saw the ruins of these great walls and these great towers, and he began to ask the people who lived in this region, what city had this been? And they did not even know. God destroyed ultimately, God destroyed completely this city. Chapter 2 is a, a vivid picture of the invasion and the fall. And, and it gives a picture of how the Medes and the Babylonians came in and, and just destroyed everything. In chapter 3, we're told why God destroyed the city. Listen to what it says in Nahum 3 verses 4 through 6. All this because Nineveh, the beautiful and faithless city, mistress of deadly charms, enticed the nations with her beauty. She taught them all her magic, enchanting people everywhere. 
I am your enemy, says the Lord of heaven's army. And now I will lift your skirts. I will show all the earth your nakedness and shame. I will cover you with filth, refuge, dung, and show the world how vile, vile you really are. You see, God used the Medes and the Babylonians to destroy the city, but it was God who ultimately destroyed the city and destroyed the Assyrians. And the destruction of Nineveh, listen, is a picture of how the penalty of sin is always death. And we need to understand that. God is patient with us. God is long-suffering with us, giving us time after time and chance after chance to repent and experience His grace and mercy. But if after time we refuse God's grace, we refuse God's mercy, then we will experience God's wrath. And the wages of sin is death here on earth and for all eternity. A picture of God's character, the penalty of man's sin, but there's a third thing, praise God, that we see in this book, and that's the power of God's grace. And we see this in, in one verse, chapter 1, verse 15. Nahum says this, he says, look, a messenger is coming over the mountains with good news. He is bringing a message of peace. Celebrate your festivals, O people of Jerusalem. Fulfill all your vows, for your wicked enemies will never invade your land again. They will be completely destroyed. Now he is talking in the here and now about the peace that is coming because of the end of the Assyrian reign. But he is speaking prophetically about one who is coming to bring good news. One who is coming who will bring ultimate peace to our life. And the one who came to bring good news, according to the book of Luke, is the one who was born in Bethlehem. Jesus Christ is his name. When those angels cried out, they said, we bring you good news of great joy for a Savior has been born to you and Christ is his name. And I'm here to tell you, the only way that you can have peace in the storms of this life, the only way that you can have peace with God, and the only way you can ever really live at peace with others is through the one who comes proclaiming good news, Jesus Christ. And so have you received him? Do you know him? Have you discovered his grace and his mercy? Because here's what you need to understand. One day, every single one of us is going to meet God and we will experience the benefits of the accepted grace of God or we will experience the wrath of God because we have rejected Jesus. We have refused his rule in our life. So what will it be with you? The grace of God? Or the wrath of God? Those are the only two choices. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of commitment. We're going to 
have an altar time and I'm going to be down front, Pastor Scott's going to be down front and our altar is going to be open for, for us to just come and pour out our hearts to God. To pray for others, to pray for ourselves, to pray for revival. But the most important thing this morning is this. If you're here and you've never, ever humbled yourself before God, acknowledge that He is your only hope. You haven't accepted Him as your Savior. You haven't surrendered your life to Him as the Lord of your life. Then today, please don't leave here without doing that. I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes and with your head bowed and with your eyes closed. If, if you're here and you need to give your heart and life to Jesus this morning, then I want to encourage you right here, right now, to pray this prayer. Not just repeating words, that will be meaningless. To pray this prayer from a broken heart. Broken because you've rebelled against your creator. Broken because you've sinned against him. Humble heart. Crying out to him. Recognizing your only hope is him. So if that's what you want to do this morning, then I encourage you to pray this prayer. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me for my sin and rebellion. I know you love me. I believe that you died for me. And this morning, I'm asking you to save me. I'm surrendering my life to you. Come into my heart. Take control of my life. Fill me with your spirit. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Amen.